Welcome to Tell Me More Live, the recorded version of our live storytelling night at the Push Comedy Theater in Norfolk, Virginia. In this recording, Melissa Bowman shares a story about receiving dreaded news about her husband. I don't think anybody can fully be prepared for death, but I like to think that I was super doubly unprepared for death because I'd never lost anyone before. I'd never lost a parent or a grandparent or a sibling or a loved one, a best friend. I'd never even lost a pet. And every movie I'd ever watched and every book I'd ever read really romanticized death. You know, death came in quietly and peacefully at the end of a very long negotiation and a very long life. And whoever it was that was meant to go went quietly and peacefully. And the people who needed to grieve, grieved. And the people who needed to cry, cried. And then slowly, slowly, everyone would come back. They would find love again. They would find happiness again. And everything would get tied up with a nice, neat little bow on a happy ending. So when the phone rang to tell my husband that his father had died suddenly, and that he and I and our two-day-old baby needed to go to D.C., I wasn't prepared. And then eight months later when I was told that my husband had died. I was no more prepared. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Steve and I met on the radio. Not the radio like you might be thinking about it where one of us is a DJ and one of us is musical talent. No. Steve was a Navy pilot and I worked on the bombing ranges. So Steve's job, any pilot's job, was to fly in and drop a bomb on what used to be a bus, and then wait. And my job was to watch for the smoke charge on a split screen and make a grease pencil mark on the top, make a grease pencil mark on the bottom, measure it, run a really quick triangulation formula, generate a clock code and a foot position, so say like 1.35 at 4 o'clock, and relay that information to the pilot. And the pilot would take the information and write it down on his kneeboard with a grease pencil, make some mental calculations and some changes, make the adjustments, and come around and try again. Six bombs, six passes, six chances to hit the center. My job was not to flirt. <laughs> My job was not to have fun. My job was definitely not to fall in love. But because Steve was Steve and I'm me, we flirted. <laughs> we flirted and we had fun and I fell in love. And Steve had movie star looks to go with that movie star voice. He was impossibly handsome and impossibly smart and impossibly kind. Greatness followed him girls followed him. I followed him. I followed him from our little house, my little house in Fallon, to his little house in Lemoore. And shortly before we got married, he told me that the squadron that he was in needed to go on deployment to Japan right about a week after we were going to get married. Honey, he said, we have to be the leaders in this. We have to be happy and supportive so everyone will feel good. 
It's really important. And I'll come back, and we'll be newlyweds. Okay. So we got married, and a week later, I said goodbye to my impossibly handsome husband, and I waited. I waited for the rest of that spring, and I waited through a summer, and I waited through a fall, and I waited through a winter. And then on a very, very gray day, a plane brought my husband back. And we were newlyweds for a few months. It was fun. And then Steve got invited to be part of a program called Navy Fighter Weapons School, which you might recognize as Top Gun. And the invitation came the exact same month as the movie. And I am here to tell you that my experience was nothing like that movie. <laughs> I didn't get to go to San Diego. First of, all, first of all, let me roll back. It is not a couple of glorious weeks. It's more like a couple of months. And I didn't get to go to San Diego. And I didn't get to go to a honky-tonk bar. And I didn't get to sit on a damn piano. And I didn't get to tell my impossibly handsome husband that he should take me home or lose me forever. <laughs> no. What I got was pregnant. So I stayed home. I stayed home and I waited. And then Steve came back from fighter weapons school and said he had news. He was going to stay in the squadron that he was in just a little bit longer so that he could transition to a better airplane, an airplane that he really wanted to fly, the best in the business at the time. There's a catch. That squadron was going to PCS, which means permanent change of station, for those of you who don't know, to Japan. But not for long, he said. Just for a couple of months, he said. And because I was big as a house pregnant, and it was only going to be a couple of months, it didn't make sense for me to go with. It made sense for me to stay home and wait. And he'd come back. And then I had Matt, and he did come back. And then his dad died suddenly. And so when we were in D.C. and Steve told me he had to go back to Japan and I had to go back to our house with our baby. I wasn't thrilled. <laughs> but what could you do? So I went home and Steve went back to Japan. Not for just a couple more weeks or for a couple more months. It was a long-ass time. I waited. And we exchanged letters. And then he would tell me about what he was doing and who he was seeing and what the sky looked like above the clouds. And I would tell him what the baby looked like and how he was growing and changing and how wonderful it would be when Steve came home and we could be newlyweds all over again, just the three of us. And Steve did come home. Uh, he came home that summer with news. Uh, he was going to transition to a different squadron. And there was a catch. This one was also going to PCS to a new city. But this time we were going to Fallon, Nevada, which is where I had lived, where we'd met. And it's not that Fallon, Nevada is a wonderful place to be. Anybody who's ever seen it will tell you it is not. It is not. Um, but the idea of having my husband back and having an opportunity to have a fresh start and potentially having a job was incredibly exciting, and I was super happy about it. So When Steve told me about the new squadron, which was the aggressor squadron, which meant a lot more training and a lot more learning and a lot more opportunities to fly, initially I was like, yes, badass, let's do this thing. And then he was gone every day and every night because learning those new tactics meant that he had to fly every chance he got. 
so he would get up in the morning and be gone all day. And because I was young, 24, and because I was immature, and because I had waited so damn long for him to come home, I let my frustration turn into bitterness and jealousy and sharpness. I was jealous of that million-dollar machine he strapped between his legs every single day because that million-dollar machine wasn't me, and I wanted it to be. So every night, I would wait for Steve to come home, and I would reheat his dinner, and he would tell me about what he had seen that day and how he had done and what the sky looked like above the clouds. And I would tell him some inane bullshit about my day which was piles of laundry and grocery shopping in a small town and how many times the baby had barfed. You know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't terribly sexy or exciting, and that doesn't matter because I was just killing time. I was just killing time for when he would take his uniform off and we would go to bed, and he would just be my impossibly handsome husband, and there would be no million-dollar machine between us. So the last night before he died... I was blathering on about some bullshit. And the TV was on in the background. And there was a TV show, and there were two women, sisters, fighting over an urn. You only want it because you think mom liked you better. You only want it because it matches the drapes. Whatever whatever it was, it was was happening in the background, and it caught Steve's attention. So (laughs) who can blame him? Uh, So he looked at me, and he said, you know, it says in my will that I want to be cremated, Right? I said, I know this. And he said, well, I don't. I want to be buried in Arlington next to my dad. I said, well, okay. You should probably get that in writing, you know, in case I'm not around to make that happen for you. He said, yeah, maybe tomorrow. Okay. And then we went to bed. We slept stuck together just like we always did. And the next morning he got up and he showered and he put his uniform on and he kissed me goodbye and I grumbled something because I'd been up with a crying baby all night. And it doesn't matter that I don't remember what I said, because I got a second chance. Because about five minutes after Steve left, he stuck his head back in and said, I have to take your car. My car's out of gas. I have to take your car. Steve drove a big hulking box of a car with manual steering and manual windows and no, no heat and no air conditioning. And the only thing I liked less than driving that beast was putting gas in it. And I drove a, tiny, a hamster wheel. And Steve was like over six foot tall. And watching him trying to get into this car was like watching really bad interpretive dance. <laughs> I didn't want to do it. Also, I already put gas in my car. I didn't want to do his car. So I said, don't take my car. And he said, honey. Fun fact, the man only ever called me honey when he thought he was in trouble. (laughs) Which is hilarious because I could never be mad at him. Honey, I'm flying today. I have to take your car. I love you. And I said, don't take my car. (laughs) Jesus. And he said, honey, what if I die today? 
You have to tell me you love me. Do you think I told that man I loved him? Do you think I told him that I had loved him from the minute I heard his voice? Or from the minute I saw him? Or that I wouldn't just love him for the rest of his life, I'd love him for the rest of mine? Do you think I told him how much I loved the family that he gave me? I turned my face towards the door and I filled my lungs with air and I said, I don't love you! And don't take my car! So a couple hours later, when the chaplain's car pulled into the driveway, I knew. I knew we weren't looking for a very hungry, sunburned pilot walking around in the desert. And I knew this wasn't a rescue mission. It's recovery. And when I stood in Arlington, next to Steve's grave, which was next to his dad's. I wasn't prepared. And when I realized I was going to take an eight-month-old baby home and raise him by myself, I wasn't prepared. And when I took that baby home to the house that we had loved in and lived in, And the squadron left as they had planned to, and I was left untethered and without a network of my own, and I wasn't prepared. And it took several months for them to comb that very large crash site. It took a long time to find every bit of metal and every bit of bone that was in the desert. And on that last day, when the last man was walking the last inch, and he looked down and he saw a completely unburned pocket. And he bent down and he picked it up and he unzipped it. He was not prepared. Because the thing about pilots that love to fly and love their wives. They take their wedding ring off. They take their wedding ring off because if they ever had to eject, they could lose a finger, and that could be career-ending. So they take their wedding ring off and they put it in their pocket. And when the flight's over, they put it back on. And when that last man walking that last inch unzipped the pocket, and found a completely unburned wedding ring, Steve's ring. And he returned it to me. I had it made into a necklace. I had it plated on two sides, so in case Matt ever wanted to wear it, he could just pop the gold off. 
It had three dates put on it. 5-11-85, which is the day we got married. 12-2-86, which is the day Matt was born. And 8-7-87, which is the day Steve died. Just two and a half short years. And I wore this ring a lot that first year. So much so that Matt cut his first tooth on it. It's a tiny little dent. And I've worn it a lot since then. I wear it when I need a little courage or a little extra luck or when I need to be reminded that I absolutely have an angel on my shoulder. But mostly I wear it to remind myself that I don't have to wait. Steve came home. He just came home the only way he could. If you'd like to come out and tell a story like this one, or just enjoy the show, visit tellmemorelive.org. That's tellmemorelive.org. We will find a list of upcoming shows, submission and contact forms, and more Storyteller podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening to Tell Me More Live.